One cannot imagine what the simple phrase of an official statement like, we have recaptured a trench, really means. Captain Henri Desagneaux, 359th Infantry Regiment, French Army, from Verdun, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast. So, in the spirit of trying to knock out a quick episode on a topic of interest, I undertook reading Henri Desagneaux's A French Soldier's War Diary, 1914 to 1918. Back in December, when Alex Lyons came on the show to talk about his great-grandfather's experiences as a French soldier in World War I, he mentioned the opening quote of this episode in the course of our conversation. I remembered that I already had Desagneaux's book on the shelf, and of course, that reference inspired me to read it. Couple of random thoughts. I bought Henri Desagneaux's memoir back when I bought my last big haul of naval and military press books. I just buy books, knowing that someday they'll come in handy for the podcast. For this one... That someday became March 2023. I was just wondering, do any of you folks out there do the same thing with books? At the beginning of this month, I had several podcasts lined up for timed releases and was thinking, man, this one's short. I'll read it in a week and then bust out a quick episode on it. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Except that it wasn't. Instead, to borrow a line from the film In the Loop that my family uses quite often, it was more like difficult, difficult, lemon difficult. Daily life gets in the way, as it does, and it took me a damn long time to read a 110-page book. It's now the end of March, and I'm here just sitting down to write this and now recording this. Mind you, I've still got the next Mirzargon episode to work on, too. Laysai. That's the way it goes sometimes. But hey, we're here now, so let's talk about why the opening quote inspired me. I'm sure I've mentioned it before, at least I hope I have, but one idea that pops back up in my head time and again as I read through First World War books is of the sheer amount of labor that was involved in prosecuting the war when I read of soldiers having dug a sap trench into no man's land during the night, for example, I've always thought of how much work that had to mean for the digging party. How many times those picks had to be driven into the earth. How many shovels full of soil had to be moved. How much sweat was shed by these men. So 
much work. In his recent episode of the Old Frontline podcast on the Hindenburg Line on the Western Front, Paul Reed talked about how the Germans retreated to their new Siegfriedstellung trench lines in early 1917. But, of course, they did not build any trenches for the following French and British troops. So for the Poilus and the Tommies, all new trench systems had to be dug along the length of the new Hindenburg Line. And again, all the sweat and toil that went into building them, not to mention the blood, too, that poured into these gashes in Mother Earth. So, to hear then-French army captain Henri Desagneaux make a remark in a similar vein, it stuck with me, and I felt that now was the time to read his memoir. Of course, I was not disappointed. Henri Desagneaux, whose last name, quick aside, means lambs, was around 36 years old when the First World War broke out across Europe. An established and settled man, in 1914 he was the chief lawyer of the French Eastern Railway Company's legal department. Mobilization saw him assigned to the Railway Transport Service. In early 1916, he was transferred to Combat Command and was sent to the 359e Regiment d'Infanterie, the 359th Infantry Regiment, part of the French Army's 129th Infantry Division. For the majority of the war, the tall, upright, crop-mustached Desagneaux, with wide mouth, broad nose, and big hands, a symbol of French manhood, would serve with this regiment. Captain Desagneaux was assigned command of the 6th Battalion's 22nd Company. His memoir shows that as an officer, he wasn't above grumbling like the rest of his men, but he knew his place and knew what was expected of him. Taking over his company in the 359th in mid-February 1916 in the Vosges sector, he wrote, I take command of my company, three very ordinary sub-lieutenants, two butchers and a draper's assistant, all reservists. I feel the ill will of the combatants against someone from the rear, but I'm the boss and they don't dare say anything. The 359th had been bled out in the French Champagne offense of the previous autumn. The 359th had attacked on the 5th and 6th of October 1915, but had failed on account of barbed wire not being cut by the preceding artillery. In his own words, two companies had been decimated or captured, while two other companies had, quote, spent the day between the lines and suffered huge losses, end quote. Desagneaux saw that as a result of these heavy losses in men, the regiment was, quote, forced to promote whoever they could, end quote. As a result, he judged that the NCOs could be a lot better. They were corporals or even privates two months ago. They have no notion of leadership or responsibility. They are privates with stripes. Still, this was the regiment with which he went to the Inferno of Verdun in June 1916. The men of the 359th hadn't yet reached the battlefield. 
and already there were ominous signs of the different nature of this massive artillery battle. On the 12th of June, Captain Desagneaux wrote, Isoncourt, last stage before Verdun. There was not much room as carload upon carload of supplies and munitions speed past us. The next day, the regiment was transported to Nixeville, to the southwest of Verdun, where today stands a monument to Lavoie Sacré. There, wrote Desagneaux, at 5 p.m., order for departure at 6.30. We are going to be quartered in the citadel of Verdun. Faces are grave. The guns are thundering over there. It's a real furnace. Everyone realizes that perhaps tomorrow death will come. Numerous rumors are circulating. We are going to Mort-Homme, which has been captured by the Bosch, or to the fort of Vaux. What is certain, nothing good lies in store for us. Transferred to command of the 21st Company, Designeault and his soldiers marched from the ruins of Verdun to the Bois-Ravin quarries on the right bank of the Meuse, where they were in reserve. The next two days for Captain Designeault really needs to be heard in his own words. Quote, 16 June, Friday. Superb weather. But not far from us, it's a furnace of artillery fire. The Bosch pump their shells at us, and our guns reply. What a racket. 150s and 210s scour the lands on all sides, and there is nothing anyone can do but wait. The battalion is massed in the ravine without any shelter. If their shelling was not at random, it would be dreadful for us. The German observation balloons scan the horizon. Up in the sky, their planes search for us. We curl up in a hole when a shell bursts near us, and it's like this until evening when orders arrive. At 6 p.m., my company and another, the 24th, receive the order to advance with a view to reinforcing the 5th Battalion, which is to attack on the following day. We leave, not knowing exactly where we are going, and no one has a map. We have a vague idea where the command posts are. Guides are rare in this area where death stalks at every step. With difficulty, we move along crumbling trenches, cross a ridge to take up our position in the Havane des Dames. The shells rain down. Still, no shelter. We haven't eaten for 24 hours and don't know if supplies can arrive tonight. 17 June, Saturday. The attack is due at 9 a.m. The 106th is in charge with the 5th Battalion of the 359th as support. We have to recapture a trench at the top of the ravine that the Bosch took from us the day before. We spend the night in the Bras Ravin. Hurriedly, we dig a trench to give our men some shelter. Just beside us, there is a cemetery where the dead are being brought at every moment. The guns fire furiously. From 3 o'clock, it's hell. One cannot imagine what the simple phrase of an official statement like we have recaptured a trench really means. The attack is prepared from 4 to 9 o'clock, all guns firing together. The Germans fire nonstop. Ammunition dumps blow up. It's deadly. There are so many explosions around us that the air reeks of powder and earth. We can't see clearly anymore.
We wait anxiously without knowing whether we shall be alive an hour later. At nine, the gunner's range lengthens. We can't see anything up in front anymore. The planes fly low, signaling all the time. At eleven, after a relative pause, the cannonade starts up again. At two p.m., it's worse still. It's enough to drive you mad. The Bosch are only firing their two tens and one fifties. Shrapnel explodes above us. We have no idea of what is happening or of the result. We are infested by huge black flies. You don't know where to put yourself. At 6 p.m. I receive the order to reconnoiter the gun emplacements in the front line as a battalion is relieving tonight. The shell bursts are so continuously heavy that we cannot advance before nightfall and it is impossible to cross the ridge. The wounded from this morning's attack are beginning to arrive. We learn what happened. Our artillery fired too short and demolished our front-line trench, evacuated for the attack, instead of firing on the Bosch. When we attacked, the Germans let us advance to 15 meters and then caught us in a hail of machine gun fire. We succeeded in capturing several parts of the trench but couldn't hold them. At the moment, our troops are scattered here and there in shell craters. Our losses are enormous. The 106th already has 350 to 400 men out of action, two captains killed, and a large number of officers wounded. The 5th Battalion of the 359th, which was advancing in support, was caught by gunfire and suffered heavily. The 19th Company hasn't got one officer left, and the 18th, three are missing. We have 32 Bosch as prisoners. The positions are the same as before the attack, with our troops only being able to maintain the front-line position which they had previously evacuated. At nightfall, the dead arrive on stretchers at the cemetery. In this, the ravine of death, they lay there, lined up, waiting to be put into the holes that are being hastily dug for them. Major Payon, his head red with blood. Major Cormoul, black with smoke, still others unrecognizable and often in pieces. A sad spectacle which is repeated here every day. End quote. This was certainly a harrowing experience, but there is another that even more vividly captures the feelings and movements of Captain Designeault and his men in action. Nearly two years after surviving the mill on the Meuse at Verdun, he and his battered 359th Infantry Regiment were in the smoldering hellmouth of another demonic battle. In May 1918, under the increasing pressure of successive German hammer blows against the Allied lines in France and Belgium, French and British forces were being shuttled to wherever they were needed on the Western Front. With Marshal Ferdinand Foch now in place as Allied Supreme Commander, the Allies were finally working together in harried unison, desperately trying to parry Imperial Germany's blows. As a result, the French 129th Infantry Division found itself in Flanders, southwest of Ypres, Belgium, facing Mount Kemmel. Mount Kemmel, or Kemmelberg in Flemish, is part of a group of low hills that dominate the local area. 
While generally low and with rounded slopes, Kemmel is a little over 100 meters above sea level, it is a prominent height in the low Flanders Plain. When the Germans launched their second major offensive of the Kaiserschlacht on the River Lys front on April 9, 1918, the battle swept to the south of the Ypres salient. In subsequent heavy and vicious fighting, the Germans seized the shell-shattered hill. French and British forces set about trying to retake the hill once the lines had stabilized. Captain Desagneux was not assaulting a trench per se. The details he recorded in his memoir, however, capture the struggle, the suffering, the fear and danger, the physical and emotional toll taken on him and his men. In my understanding, this recounting of the French attempts to recapture Kemmelberg also helped further describe the weight of those words he had spoken at Verdun. One cannot imagine what the simple phrase of an official statement like we have recaptured a trench really means. Desagneaux's unit took over the Kemmel sector in early May, a location in the rear of the battle area for much of the static years of the war. In just a few short weeks, relentless artillery deluges had rendered the hill and its surrounding environs a near moonscape of shell holes. Desagneaux himself described it upon his arrival as an orgy of gunfire. We go now to his recounting of the days leading up to and through the attack he helped lead on May 20th, 1918, as well as his eventual relief. It is a harrowing tale of combat in the First World War. Quote, 15 May, 1 a.m., gas again, our shelter is full of it. You can hardly breathe, your throat burns, you cough and spit, tears stream down your face. There can be no thought of sleep. The guns are firing madly. We are in a state of alert as we expect to be attacked at dawn. However, the morning passes uneventfully. Can we now doze off a little? Our orders for the coming attack arrive. The terrain has to be studied, and from 4 p.m., the Bosch bombard us, firing gas shells as well. Our losses increase daily, about 200 per battalion, i.e. 600 for the regiment. Life is getting harder. No sleep. We are wallowing in mud and filth. We can neither wash nor lie down except on the ground itself, and there is not a wisp of straw. Our joints are stiff, and we are itching all over. 18 May. I received precise details of the attack. I have been designated to command a communication detachment between the 121st Infantry Division on the left and ours. In my command, one infantry company and one company of machine gunners, half taken from the 359th and the other from the neighboring regiment. It's an awful job, as I will not know the troops placed under me until the very last moment. The attack is for the 20th. The men are exhausted. Effectives are reduced to 60 or 70 per company. There are no NCOs, and they have been in the sector for 15 days already. 19 May. The attack is for tomorrow morning. I go and inspect the terrain. 
The starting point has been fixed at the railway embankment in the ravine. My objective, a nameless farm. We shall have to cross the railway line, and then the small stream at Kemmelbeck, and then climb a slope. If we get there, I am supposed to hold my position, withstand enemy fire with no shelter of any kind, and resist any counterattacks until relief arrives. It's a day full of anguish. Orders and counter-orders flood in. You don't know what to believe. Being thus responsible to the 121st Infantry Division for the attack, I am sent to Renninghelst to see a major who has nothing to do with me, whereas the one who will be in charge of the attack is still at Popperinga and will only arrive at the lines this evening. It's utter confusion, and it's Sunday, Whit Sunday. Marvelous weather, not a cloud, brilliant sunshine, and tonight we shall have to go to our deaths. We would love to banish all our hopes and fears until afterwards. What sadness there is in our shelter rocked by shellfire. What hope is there? You can't always go on without comping it. Won't the fatal moment come when our luck will turn? And while we are here waiting to die, others have been relaxing for the past four years in the rear, or in some headquarters, or in a driving seat. All those fine army circulars have not succeeded in ousting them. Even in the camp up front, there are some who have been vegetating there for one or two years. It's always the same ones who are sent, and when reinforcements arrive, it's those who were wounded a few days previously who return, whilst so many others who are fit and capable have never seen a trench and don't know what a shell burst is. The hours pass. Night spreads its dark cloak over the huge field, whilst the artillery pounds the lines in the rear. The latest orders arrive. I transmit mine. Two platoons in line, each with a squad of machine gunners. As a second wave of attack, two platoons each of infantry and machine guns. Plans for wiping out the enemy trenches, organization of our position. Dinner? We aren't hungry. Our throats are dry. Our only thoughts are of what is to come. The Major stays at his post. A handshake before leaving. A good luck. And I disappear into the night with Pierre, towards the great unknown. 20 May. Whit Monday. Splendid evening. The stars are shining in the sky. And on the ground, shells burst in sheets of light. At midnight... I make my way to the point where I'm supposed to meet the company from the 36th Infantry Regiment, which has been placed under my command. I have no information concerning the officers and NCOs in it, and I shall have to lead an attack with troops that I have never seen before. At 1 a.m., the troops arrive at their position near the railway line. Then we notice that we are totally unprotected and that there isn't enough room for everyone. How dismal it is to watch in the darkness these files of men, bent in two, silently groping for some spot to shelter in. They jostle one another, each man trying to recognize his neighbor. They are soon forced to spread along the railway line towards the right, but they fall upon a mound of corpses, remnants from previous attacks. The stench is vile. Through the darkness we perceive shapeless forms, legs folded in two, arms outstretched, eyes wide open. The whole place is littered with bodies, weapons, and equipment. The smell forces us back. We can't think of staying there. 
The men must be moved away so they are spared this vision of death before confronting it themselves. Therefore, we fall back towards the left. There will be a gap on our right. Each man digs, as best as he can, a hole to prevent himself from being seen. But aren't we digging our own graves in the night? At last, we are in position. Time ticks by, and dawn is about to break. The officers from the 36 come to discuss the attack with me. Their orders don't coincide with mine. Their order is to launch the attack at three minutes to six, whilst we are due to attack at six. What a confabulation. Everyone is trying to save his own skin and to find some means of escape. Tired of talking, I ordered them to obey my commands. Then, something else. The footbridges, which are to help us cross the Kemmelbeck, are not there. The bright spark, who was supposed to put them there, has found it easier not to bother. What organization? Everyone is trying to protect himself and acts just as he pleases. The generals are far away, aren't they? No cohesion. Poor soldier, here's your orders and get on with it. 3.30 a.m. At last, the day breaks and puts an end to all indecision. Mount Kemmel towers darkly above us, and up in the sky, the planes begin their inspection. We are forced to take cover. 4 a.m. It's dawn now. We are in a state of anguish. The planes are 50 meters above us. The weather is exceptionally clear. It's just not possible that they don't see us. We curl up even smaller. We would burrow into the ground if we could. Not a murmur except for the drone of the planes which circle tirelessly above us. They are flying so low that at any moment we expect to see a flare go up which will alert their artillery. Then we will be horribly crushed. 5.15. Not a sound. You would think that both artilleries came to some agreement this morning so as to destroy us better later on. 5.30. Final recommendations between comrades. If I fall, you won't leave me there. My packet of bandages is here. You've got my family's address. You know whom to tell. 5.40. Sad at heart, everyone looks at his watch. A few minutes, and it will be time to go. A last mouthful of wine or rum to give oneself some courage. A few final preparations. We adjust our belts and cartridge pouches. 5.45. Calm and deathly silence. What is our artillery doing that it is not pounding away at the Bosch? God, how long the minutes are. 5.50. Suddenly, as if by magic, the barrage is unleashed. It's unbelievable. 75s, 90s, 110s, 155s, all firing at once. Shells of every sort shower down in their thousands in front of us. It's just one curtain of smoke. We can't see a thing anymore. Behind us, a gun is firing 75s at 8 meters on Butterfly Farm. The din is frightful. The Bosch do not return the fire. It's such a beautiful sight that everyone comes out of his hole to watch. 556, 57. Make ready. With the lump in our throats and no more time for thought, we concentrate on the hands of our watch, which has been set for 558. Bayonets fixed. Amid the noise of gunfire, orders echo along the line. Stand by to attack. 6 a.m. 
Forward. Forward. Everyone is on his feet. We join up with the others. We're off. We stick as close to our barrage as possible. On occasions too closely. Some of our men are wounded by our own shells. We curse it for not moving forward quickly enough. We would like to be up there already before the Bosch start firing. Suddenly, machine gun bullets whistle past us. The Bosch are on to us. We take cover, then move off again. The barrage moves on, and we follow. Our only thought is to advance, to reach our goal. We are stopped momentarily at the Kemmelbeck stream. No gangplanks. We push and shove, then flounder in water up to our thighs. We've crossed it. Getting wet doesn't matter. We must advance, reach the ridge which draws nearer and nearer at any price. Bullets hiss over our heads again. Some wounded limp back to the rear. Nobody pays them any attention. All our attention is focused on the ridge. The barrage lengthens again and falls beyond the ridge to pound the rear of the enemy's lines. Then, panic-stricken, a group of Bosch comes stumbling down, without weapons or equipment, and with their hands in the air. They seem half-crazed, with their eyes bulging out of their heads. Our barrage has stunned them. We are at the ridge. There are German corpses there, chunks of bloody flesh, with terror written on their faces, which are almost black already. On we go. We are over the ridge. The nameless farm is ours. Spades out, and while everyone is digging away, flinging to one side the evil-smelling corpses, I install my machine guns and organize communications and positions. We recapture four British guns abandoned here during a previous attack. We take in addition four machine guns and 18 Bosch. We take cover. Mount Kemmel looks down on us. The reaction of the Bosch promises to be terrible. In front of us, it's a plain as far as the foot of Mount Kemmel. No protection anywhere. Our success is total. The sun is resplendent. We can breathe at last. 7 a.m. We shall have to spend the complete day in this spot, in a hole a few centimeters across, not moving for fear of giving ourselves away. The prospect of being relieved makes it bearable. 10 a.m. The Bosch react. Our reserves are showered with shells. While awaiting our turn, we hurry to get all our organization complete. We dig, dig, and dig. The heat is torrid. The corpses are giving off an awful stench. We should really have a bite to eat. Pierre lost the food we had sometime during the advance, so we have to make do with a piece of chocolate. Still, we haven't got much appetite. The Bosch really do stink too much, and their shells are getting closer. There can be no hope of getting some sleep in such heat. We wait and scratch. Everyone looks for his fleas, and every time he discovers one, crushing it between his fingernails gives him a sense of moral relief. It seems that he will scratch less now. We await relief without knowing whether it will come. It is the main hope and topic of all our conversations. Everyone surmises on the direction he will take to escape the baggage of fire. Some decide to go in a straight line, even if it means crossing old barbed wire entanglements. Others will wait and see what the evening has to offer. We wait. 
and in front of us Mount Kemmel rises formidably. It seems that all German eyes are upon us. We don't dare get up or move. Every time a man moves out of his hole to satisfy the call of nature, voices call him back and make him keep his head down. Are you crazy, you silly bastard? You'll get us spotted, you numbskull. The afternoon passes without mishap, but relief is not forthcoming. Everyone is glum again. They have bitter words for those who leave them here. Are the pigs going to leave us to die here like dogs? Perhaps they imagine that we haven't done enough already. Twenty-four hours here. I'm fed up. And our food. Who's going to bring it? Nobody here will hear of doing six or seven kilometers and as many back again to go and fetch it. Ah, the pigs. While these insults fly, evening falls and the artillery open up. Soon we are in an inferno of fire. At Laclaita, everything is ablaze, and in the fields the former English barrack huts and some ruined farms are in flames. Munition dumps explode. It's a real firework display. The whole plain is alight. It's war in all its horror. Huge shells rain down in the ravine and on the railway track, forming a virtually impenetrable wall. We tremble at the thought of having to cross this area during the relief. The Bosch are jumpy and start firing at the least pretext. We too fear a counterattack, and our artillery is on edge. Amid this fury of projectiles, neither food nor orders can reach us. We are separated from the world. In front, our baggage, behind us, the Bosch. Our water bottles are getting empty. We sparingly keep a few drops for tomorrow, thinking of the wounded or of the heat. As for food, no one is hungry, and a bar of chocolate or a tin of bully beef will be ample. How long the night's wait seems. There is no thought of rest. We work frantically. Crouched in our hole, we await a lull in the barrage so that we can dig our hole deeper for tomorrow. Next, we rid ourselves of the foul-smelling German bodies by flinging them as far away as possible. Everyone works until the guns start firing more violently again. 21 May. Night draws to its close and day is about to break. We are hoping for some respite. Suddenly, as well as the violent explosions which splatter us with earth, we have to contend with gas shells which give off a noxious white vapor. Gas! Gas! The cry echoes all along the line. We shall have to live with our masks on and be prepared for a counterattack. It's a glorious day, a real warm spring morning. It's going to be hot later on. Planes fly over both lines, and the artillery holds its fire for fear of being spotted. We would be able to get a breath of fresh air if it were not for the German planes buzzing about above us, taking piles of photographs. Mount Kemmel has its eyes on us, too. We have to curl up as small as possible so as not to be seen. We wait, and we scratch. We are living in the earth. Our clothes are thick with dirt. We are itching all over, in our shoes, in our trousers, under our shirts. We can't even nod off for one single moment. Even if the guns are silent, the bugs keep on crawling. God, how filthy we are. Fifteen days' growth of beard. 
And for the last 18 days, I haven't taken my shoes off or had a change of underwear. We have no water to wash in, just mud all around us. We can't even satisfy the call of nature anymore. Mount Kemmel is ever-present, watching, and we are forced to wait until nightfall unless we want our heads blown off. Our thoughts turn to the coming relief and to the long, hard road back to get away from all this. As soon as evening falls, the artillery fire becomes intense and draws ever closer. The Bosch must have brought some new guns up into action. Smoke and flames billow from our lines in the rear and our former position at La Glaita. In the ravine below us and on the railway track, huge 210s and 150s explode with a deafening roar. A little later, at 9.30 p.m., while I was inspecting the lines and making final preparations for the relief, which we were told would come tonight, the first barrage opens up. Despite its horror, the cry is unanimous. It's superb. The Clyta is in flames. Munition dumps explode. Mount Kemmel is one huge ball of smoke. Ah, what a pounding the Bosch are getting. Yes, but we are getting one too. It's one barrage of fire everywhere, and the Bosch are pouring gas upon us. For the 15th or 20th time of the day, we put our masks on. We await our relief. Can it take place? Will the soldiers be able to cross this wall of metal and flames to reach us? The relief is due at midnight. It is 11 p.m., and the guns rage. All of a sudden, a shout in front of us. The Bosch! The Bosch! It's a counterattack. At one and the same time, machine guns open up, rifles fire at point-blank range, grenades explode everywhere, and as soon as a red flare is up, our barrage starts up. The Bosch suffer heavy losses, and those who can escape do so in disorder. 22nd May, midnight. The barrage stops, but there is still heavy firing on the rear and on the lines. We are in a cloud of smoke. The shells burst two or three meters from us. Not a drop of water to drink. Our throats are parched. We wait. Crash! We are covered with earth. That one's not ours. We await the next. In the hole next to us, two men are buried. Help me! One of them runs for it, crazed with fear. Another has a broken leg. He's nothing to help him except his packet of dressings. Carry him to safety? We can't even think of it in such a hail of fire. Crash! It's still not our turn, but again, there are cries of agony from a neighboring hole. Are we all going to be wiped out one by one before being relieved? Relief? We've never given up thinking about it. How could one get through such a furnace alive? Isn't it better to stay where we are? A priest with a team of stretcher bearers has come by night to bury the dead. Ah! He may as well have stayed where he was. This team is dispirited. It would like to be far away. They are bandsmen who don't like life in the infantry. Our relief is overdue. The gunfire seems even heavier. It's the 6th and 10th battalions who are supposed to be coming to relieve the 36th Infantry Battalion on my left, the Desagneau Detachment, and the 5th Battalion. It's my job to place the battalion, which is relieving the 5th and my detachment. At 1.15 a.m., some men arrive, half-crazed. They have lost their leader. 
and have left many comrades killed or wounded on the way. They don't know if the others have been able to get through, nor whom they must relieve. Time passes, no one, and the guns fire incessantly, throwing up a huge wall of fire in the ravine and on the railway line. 1.45 a.m., no one comes. 2 a.m., a platoon arrives now, commanded by a sergeant who has no idea of the company he is supposed to relieve. Time is pressing. Dawn comes early, and with it disappears our hope of leaving. I put this squad in position. The previous one runs away. 2.15, nothing. 2.30, nothing. At 2.35, a sergeant and two corporals arrive. Their men have been left on the way, terrified by the gas or artillery fire, wounded or killed. Daylight will soon be here. Will we be able to get through when our turn comes? The enemy artillery is battering the railway track and the ravine. I send some men to look for our units. We shall have to hurry. 2.45, some more men arrive. The relief is taking place as best it can. The units will group together later on. 3 a.m. One company on the right has now been relieved. My detachment has left in turn. 3.10. The last company is complete. We all leave in small groups. 3.15. Day breaks. I give a last-minute report which is very brief. Our lines are from here to there, the position of our machine guns, enemy positions, hold your ground. End quote. Henri Desagneaux would later be mentioned in dispatches for his actions on the 20th of May, 1918. He was actually mentioned in dispatches a total of five times during the war. The fortunes of war brought him to the Lorraine front in the autumn, and he finished out hostilities as a major. Occupation duties right after the war brought him into Germany, where he said he was stationed in Bavaria and around the city of Kaiserslautern. He was demobbed, demobilized, at the end of January 1919, and went on to live another half-century. His son had his writings published in 1971. I hope this not-so-little episode brings yet another angle on World War I combat to life for you. Definitely pick up the book. It's typically a quick read for me at 110 pages and should be a quick read for you too, and it is a memorable one. Thanks again to Alex Lyons for the inspiration that made this happen. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcasts at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at WW1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.